Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Tez My Best Teacher podcast with me, Dan Worth. Today's guest is wildlife documentary filmmaker Gordon Buchanan. We chat about his time in school and the teachers that made an impact on his life, including how taking home economics led to a lifelong love of cooking, and why a school trip to Germany was a seminal moment in his youth. He also recalls his still very real dislike of times tables tests and his not ideal solution for passing them, and we chat about some of his most memorable wildlife encounters, including almost being a snack for a polar bear. All that and lots more on the latest My Best Teacher podcast from Tez. Hi, Gordon. Welcome to the My Best Teacher podcast. Wonderful for you to be joining us. And um, how's life treating you at the moment? Yeah, good. I mean, it's been an interesting year, I think, all around. That's mm. an understatement. But um, yeah, it's been, I mean, a very, very quiet year work-wise for mm. me. Um, funnily enough, sort of last year when lockdown sort of first sort of kicked in, there was sort of, um, sort of we were limping along and I'd sort of managed to get, you know, a few places last year. But there was sort of the knock-on effect. There was just lots of TV work that had just got um, mm. cancelled. So I just thought I'd kind of roll with the punches and make the most of, of a bad situation and just enjoy being at home because that's sort of, you know, having time at home is the one thing that I have a, a shortage of. Yeah, I can imagine in your line of work, you're often packing your bags and heading out the door again. So it must have, like I say, in a, in a way, it must be nice to have that taken away from you and forced to just stay put. It's quite a you know, unsettling job. As much as people say you've got the best job in the world and I kind of appreciate that, I, you know, I do a job that I love and get a lot out of it. But when you're constantly coming and going, mm. you kind of you sort of realise the importance of your your family and having that sort of good solid relationship with your your family and your and your friends, which is kind of you know you, quite easy to um, you know let slip. I think for a lot of people, they work in this way, constantly coming and going. You know, they're kind of looking to priority, prioritising work rather than mm. prioritising sort of real life. Well, you touched there on, on, on the amazing things you get to do in your work, and we're going to talk about that in a bit, which I think will be really interesting. But before we get to that, let's talk about your school days. Um, and let's start with primary school, obviously, the obvious place to start. Where, whereabouts did you go to primary school? And, and again, what memories have you got? Positive memories? Or is it, I mean, was it sort of quite idyllic and outdoorsy? What was it like? Yeah, well, I think childhood was idyllic and, and outdoorsy. But I think for me, the worst part of childhood was was school. <laughs> uh, I went to, I started primary school in Dumbarton, which is kind of not far from, but sort of 20 minutes drive from Glasgow. Um, I went to Aikenbar Primary School, which sort of had just been demolished a couple of years ago. It was sort of, it was on its last legs. Um, and I haven't got that many kind of you know, recollections of, well, I know I remember sort of vividly going to school for the first day and being in the classroom. Um but my, I went to, we moved to Mall for primary three. So most of my primary school was in, in Tobermory um, Primary School and then Tobermory High School. Um, but what I've realised is of our, our son Harris is dyslexic. So he was diagnosed of, you know, as a dyslexic, if that's right, term, uh, a few years ago. And at that point, reading more about dyslexia, I was like, well, my wife said, um, do you think you might be dyslexic? And uh, I was just reading sort of a lot about how it manifests in children, how it manifests mm. in adults. And I thought, ah, that explains a lot. Mm. Uh, and particularly with, with school and my kind of inability to kind of um, 
do do well and to concentrate. And I think that's it. So I think, yeah, I definitely have a, a, a more than a touch of that. And through life, I've just found ways of, you know, kind of you, you, it's the strategies to kind of work mm. work with it and work work around it. But I think a lot of my sort of um, not that I was I wasn't sort of a sullen, unhappy child, but I was more kind of a child of sort of using my my imagination. So it was like a kind of chronic daydreamer. Yeah. So in school, I sort of just unless it was something that you could use your imagination, I was just sort of switched off for a lot of mm. my education, just in a little world of my own, sort of imagining things and sort of just looking out the window and and not really there and not really engaged. Um, but I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't one of the problem kids or kids that caused problems. Yeah. So in that sort of in that way, teachers just kind of looked overlooked me and thought, okay, well, he's sort of not particularly bright, yeah. <laughs> but he's not causing any problems. So just sort of, you know, let him stay out the window. Yeah. No, I can imagine. I imagine though for teachers, those pupils are probably sometimes really nice to have in your class because, like you say, they just sort of they just sort of go with the flow and go in the right direction and a little nudge here and there. And it's like you say, it's the other. The other pupils to take up a bit more time. I mean, that, that's interesting what you say there about the, your sort of looking back and then you thinking, oh, maybe that's why I didn't do as well. I mean, do you sort of recall things now, like I don't know, certain lessons or, or subjects? I mean, maybe more at secondary, I don't know, but where you think that's probably why I wasn't very good at that. And actually, if I'd have had the right input, perhaps I could have done a bit better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, sort of latterly, once sort of we kind of moved into sort of primary five, six, seven. Um, I, uh, th- there was quite a lot of s- stress and anxiety at, at school and in the classroom with like, with times tables, because that was, that was the thing that I really, really struggled with. Mm. Um, and our t- teachers of, you know, so what age was of eight, nine, 10, that sort of, that kind of age, learning a timetable was something that kids could do with, with ease. But I really, really, really struggled with it. Um, and, you know, even now, sort of, you know, I'd have to, I'd take a long time to go <laughs> um, And I have, yeah, even I have a sort of, almost sort of this residual anxiety when it comes to, if somebody said, do you eight times table? I would have the same panic now as I would have. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But don't worry, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to ask you any times tables questions. <laughs> well, the palpitations already. No, no, not going to ask you, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> please, please don't, promise you. Um, so, but what I did, my workaround for that, um, which is not very advisable, is just to cheat. <laughs> so I would copy, so we'd do these, oh, what would it, it was Oh, it was te- you'd sit in a little room in a cluster and everybody had to do their, their tables. So the teacher would call out, um, you know, just like seven times eight and you wrote, wrote it down. And I would just sort of make sure that I'd sit beside somebody that, you know, would know the answers. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of do, we'd sort of do 10 a day and then it would, I think it went up to 20 a day when we're in, in, um, in sort of primary seven. And I would just sort of copy, but there were other cheaters in the, <laughs> in the class <laughs> Uh, but I was maybe, maybe kind of a uh, kind of a bit more clever with my cheating. I never got caught or spotted mm. cheating. So what the teacher did was sort of say, "Okay, everyone has like the normal pencil, and everyone has a coloured pencil. So once uh, we've done we've done all the answers, you put your pencil sort of in the middle, and then you correct um, you correct your um, 
your answers with the colored pencil. And I used to just sort of keep another pencil to write in the answers as she was calling it out. Um, and funnily enough, yeah, there was, a good, there was a good sort of couple of disruptive boys in my class. So, yeah, it was quite easy to fly under the right, radar. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I kind of certainly left my primary education not knowing my times tables. And, uh, and sort of obviously, once you got off to a bad start in that way, it's very difficult to catch up because you mm. don't want to be singled out as sort of, you know, you know, a muppet and somebody that really should know by the time you get into your, um, you know, sort of high school education. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's these things that, you know, I felt are, you know, are really important educationally. I look back and sort of, you know, as an adult, I think, well, God, if, if someone had spotted that, you know, mm. um, I needed help with, with that, uh, you could, there's ways of, you know, overcoming yeah. it. And I think maybe, dyslexia probably yeah there was a couple of couple of boys in my class that kind of sort of later primary education that were dyslexic and but you know it wasn't ever picked up on, yeah. on me they got all the help and support that they that they needed yeah <laughs> or if well, it had been less good at cheating i i could have been spotted and thought okay you need to help yes you were too good at your own your subterfuge was too good yes the um, times tables is, I think, something that a lot of people probably listen to this and people remember as, as being a stressful thing of, of school, um, certainly in primary school. If we look at other elements of primary school, though, was there a teacher or, or a lesson or, I don't know, a, a day out or anything like that that you remember that you have a more positive association with that you think back and think, oh, actually, yeah, that was good. Or I remember that teacher said that lesson that I particularly enjoyed or got to, you know, like, say, fired my imagination a bit. Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. There was... Um... All of the primary school teachers sort of at, when I was at school, they were all all female. And there was sort of the first teacher that I had in when I went to primary three in, in Tobermory was uh, Miss well, was Miss Shepherd, and then she got married, uh, became Miss uh, Mrs. Hickson. Um, her name's Annie Hickson, and she was yeah, one of the she was my most memorable mm. teacher and favorite teacher from primary school because she was um she was very motherly very creative and artistic and she there was a lot of stuff that she did with the kids that was using their their imagination um and i i kind of responded to that so mm. suddenly going from being completely disengaged uh, i would get sort of really focused and and enjoy school as, as kids should because mm. you know those were the things that you know pushed my buttons um and also we've at that it was just my mum and four four kids so four of us so in a household with where there's sort of divided attention you know it's quite nice i sort of really love with with uh mrs hickson sort of getting that attention uh from somebody that was very caring and not that my mother my mother's incredibly caring but you know she had sort of four jobs yes. four kids. yeah uh, and you know in reality you know we were spending more time in, in school than we were kind of at home sort of as a as a family back then um but yeah annie would or annie miss hickson would always she call you my flower and my lovely and it was always just a pleasure to go up and um, yes. i think she's sort of she, if she ever hears this i apologize for saying this but she was i suppose kind of like she was a, a hippie not that we would have known what a hippie was back then but she yeah. was, sort of, was just sort of that kind of very loving uh attentive kind of teacher yeah that's lovely yeah that does sound nice and it's interesting you, you obviously haven't ever sort of spoken to her again then, I'm guessing since you left, but if she does hear this or 
you know, she, she, you presume she'd probably be aware of what you've gone on to do, which seems nice. And in that connection, maybe she hopefully will hear this and know what a sort of positive influence she was in your childhood like that. Well, funnily enough, I, a few years back, I actually bumped, bumped into her randomly, kind of not far from, from mm. um, my house in Glasgow. Uh, and she had, she was just about to retire. Um, and I hadn't seen her for, for years and years and years. And this, soon after that, somebody got in touch to ask if I'd like, just write a few words that could be um, read out at her retirement. Mm. Too. And I did that. I can't remember what I said. Sort of, yeah, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was very complimentary. And it was sort of, you know, it's, it's easy to speak you know, honestly and genuinely and sort of warm-heartedly about somebody that you had, a, a teacher that you had an amazing, um, you know, time with. And yeah, it was nice to be able to, nice to be able to do that. Yeah. And yeah, she, she's been aware of sort of my trajectory in, in, in life. Um, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure any of the teachers, primary school or secondary school actually would have, singled me out at all and said yeah he's he's gonna do okay for himself yeah um, yeah it was sort of it probably comes as some somewhat of a surprise to yeah. what he have got something yeah. to call, call yeah. a career no it's funny you say that because there's been a few guests on like that. i mean ricky wilson obviously leading of the kaiser chiefs said the same thing he said at school he was like he, he considered himself to be very totally in the middle didn't stand out didn't do anything particularly over the top although he did sort of do performing and I was saying to him, must be you think your teacher must have found it funny to see you then fronting a rock and roll band, you know, sort of five years later when you're in your early twenties. And he said, Yeah, it must have been quite strange because at school he just wasn't that type of pupil. And but maybe the same for you. It's just we change a lot, don't we, after school, but those seeds maybe are planted a little bit with the sort of like you said, the, the creativity and the did you mean did you get to go out of out of school a lot? I mean, growing up in that part of the world, one imagines that I sort of imagine you would be out in the in the countryside all the time, but maybe not. Maybe it was the same just in the classroom all the time. I spent all of my childhood wanting to be outside mm. and when I wasn't at school I was I was always always outside I've got so few recollections of being at home in the in the house um and those that I do is, is just sort of was always represented it was, it was boring to be in the house there was mm. nothing that I wanted to to do but school trips I loved that because it was just sort of not you know not doing times tables and not doing a lot of stuff that I wasn't really engaged with. So yeah, I've got really vivid, really vivid memories of um of these days, days out. Because I actually just got back from the Isle of Mull um yesterday. So we spent a week there and I was driving around sort of the whole island and passing little places that we'd gone for a day out or had went for a school picnic. And um yeah, those memories are really, really fresh. Mm. Uh, but there wasn't sort of, yeah, there wasn't a huge amount. There was one in, sort of just sort of in my last year of primary school, there was a big school trip to Germany, mm. which was sort of, I think you had to sign up for it a year in advance. And my mum didn't have much money at all, but I think she thought, right, okay, this will be, this will be good. And everybody, everybody seemed to be, to be going on it. So <clears throat> she kind of scraped the money together and myself and my brother, who's a year older than me, went on this trip to to Germany um and that was you know extraordinary never having been abroad before 
I had been, I think I'd been down south a couple of couple of times, but yeah, we got on a bus in Auburn and it was 48 hours of Ooh, driving yeah. <laughs> from Auburn to, to get to to get to Germany. Uh, and that was amazing. It was, yeah, it, I, I don't think even in, in, in adult life I've had that sort of sense of something so new and so different mm. because, you know, the Isle of Mull, you know, you just leave leave the island. And suddenly, you're in a very different world when you're on the, the mainland and you go to a big town or a city, and it's like, God, this is yeah so different. But then you go to a, a, a different country and sort of different culture and different language, and people kind of you know looking different um, differently. It's sort of yeah, it was very yeah, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Know. We were only there for maybe kind of like a week and then sort of back on the bus. And <laughs> that's a, I say that's a hell of a long bus journey, isn't it? I mean, when you've got to cross the whole of the UK just to get started before you can get into Europe, it's a, that's a long slog. Do you remember what the trip was like? What did you do or did you go around different places? I mean, for primary school to go to Germany, I'm wondering what the sort of, what did you get out of it? What did they do with you? Our um, primary seven, prim, um, primary six and seven teacher was a lady called Gisela McDougall. And she was uh, from Germany originally uh, and had married sort of with obviously with a surname McDougall. She'd married a, a, a Scotsman and the, she'd been the teacher. She was the head of the, the primary department. Um, and I think she'd always sort of wanted to do, you know, do a trip with the school. And mm-hmm. um, so there was no real, no real reason for it. But what she did do sort of a year in advance, we started doing... German um, lessons at, yeah, so it must have been primary seven at that point. Um, so, yeah, we did uh, kind of study German for, studied, she taught us German um, for that that year. And it was, I really liked that, funnily enough, sort of, um, yeah, just sort of learning a, a new a new language at that age. Mm. I mean, none of us had learned enough to be able to sort of communicate sort of properly. Um when we got there, but it was sort of something that was nice and different. But as far as the things that we did, it was just being sort of tourists sort of yeah. went on a boat trip on the Rhine, went sort of a fun park. Um, yeah, so it was a ho- it was a holiday. It's a kind yeah. of holiday family would do with their with their kids. But yeah, um, Mrs. McDougall and some other teachers did it with um, yeah about 20, 20 odd kids. Well, well, we've talked a lot there about primary, which is which is great, and you you sort of touched briefly on on secondary. So I suppose we should sort of bridge that gap up to, to secondary now. And again, what was that like? I mean, did you did you then find sort of subjects there with the sort of more subjects that you, you you sort of took to, or was it the same sort of thing where some just didn't really chime, and you were a bit sort of again having to use sort of subterfuge to get through, or how did that all work? No, there was I think suddenly kind of being you know, there was a huge amount of relief. That we weren't going to have to do these times tables again. <laughs> I really, I knew that sort of. I probably asked my brother. I was like, "Do you have to do your ten a day times tables sort of um, in, in first year?" And like, no, no, no. That's all behind you. Um, but what I loved about you know going into high school was that there were you know sort of periods of the day where it was subjects that I really, really did enjoy. Mm. Um, so, th- but it was always you know I loved. Craft and design, so kind of woodwork. So it was the craft and design was sort of woodwork and metal work, uh, and I really, I really enjoyed that because it was it was creative and it was practical. Um, and there were 
things that I was learning. I thought, well, this is sort of, these are good life schools, just using kind of you know, woodworking equipment. Mm. And I thought at that age, I thought, well, this is something. Now I sort of see the point in learning this, this stuff. Um, I did home economics or food and, food and nutrition, as, as it was called, um, from first year and actually carried that right through high school, right up until I, I left. Um, and that was mostly cooking. There was sort of some sort of written work, but it was, yeah, the bulk of it was just learning to cook. And funnily enough, just the other day, I bumped in when I was back on Mull, I bumped into my old home economics teacher, Margaret Broad, and who was again one of my favorite teachers in in school because mm. it's a subject I love. And she was teaching me kind of practical, practical stuff. Yeah. And it's funny because I was with my kids and with my wife, and I do all of the cooking at, at home. And we're chatting away to, to Mrs. Broad. And I said, This is who you've got to thank for all of my one the wonderful food that I produce. Um, so yeah, and, and sort of, I've had a sort of lifelong love of, of cooking and sort of thinking back to sort of pro- being engaged and actually doing well. I think mm. it's not just, I liked it. I, I was, I was good at it at, at school. Uh, and again, it was practical. And I thought I can see the, I can see the point in, in this. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of things at school, sort of more academic subjects, I just didn't see them. I wasn't good at them. I wasn't engaged and I was struggling. Um, but I couldn't see, I really couldn't really see the point of them, how, you know, what, what I was going to sort of, you know, carry on in adult life. Yeah. And that these subjects would do me any good. Yeah. That's, that is a quite a common thing, isn't it? Like some certain subjects for certain people, you just think, oh, I'll never need to know this. And so you just switch off. And it's interesting you say about home economics and enjoying it and being good at it and sort of having to then continue on to your life. Cause I'm, I personally do think, I mean, I never did anything like that at school, but I look now and I think it's such a fundamental thing to know, isn't it? How, how to feed yourself well, how to look after yourself and how to cobble a meal together with some basic ingredients. And my wife did it at school and she's an excellent cook and, you know, I can get by. But you think, well, if you want to have a healthy society and tackle, you know, health issues in the country, teaching everyone how to make five good healthy meals from good ingredients is, is a sort of the best way to do that, isn't it? But yet home economics is one of these things that you either... So a lot of people I don't think ever would do it and would sort of almost think, why would you need to do, why would you do that at school? You know, but like your story there shows that it, it's such a great thing to learn how to do, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and it's and sort of, there's a sort of, it's therapeutic as, as well. And there was mm. sort of people, it was always seen as a sort of, um, you know, uh, people would drop it. You did, you had to do it for first, first and second year. And then most people would, would drop it. Um, but then there was a few, a few of us, that kind of just wanted to carry on. You had to do, after second year, you had to do a a science. um, And I just couldn't, I couldn't be bothered. I wasn't, I wasn't engaged in it. So me and a friend went to the headmaster because he said, you know, um, like home economics, that's a domestic science. So we just kind of like, let's go to the headmaster and tell him that we both wanted to be chefs. Uh, and could we could we do home economics um, uh, and not have to do it? So do that as a domestic science. And uh, the headmaster was like, "Yeah, fine, okay." So we got out of doing chemistry and biology, and uh, that was great. We just made more bakewell tarts and lasagnas, <laughs> uh, yeah. um, and we lo- yeah, I lo- loved it. Well, no, when you put it like that, let's say, what well, would you rather get out of, out of a lesson of a bakewell tart to eat or a sheet of? algebra or you know something on longshore drift then um 
it's no no competition, right? The, the Bakewell tart every time, or, or the lasagna, as you say. Well, obviously, you didn't become a, a chef, but you did go on, or you have gone on, to have a, an amazing career as a, in, in wildlife photography and filmmaking and documentary making. I mean, did any of that come from school, or was it is that, was that just entirely your own sort of, you led yourself into that path? Yeah, I kind of... I became, I think, further disengaged from school when I was about sort of 11 or 12, and I got really into horses. There was a trekking center um, in Tobermory, and we went, saved up some money, and a friend and I went pony trekking one day, and I just, both of us just fell in love with horses and being, you know, being on horseback and just being around around horses. And then, you know, from that age, 11 or 12, until I was 15, 16, all of my spare time, uh, I was just with with the horses. And I eventually started working at the, at the, at the trekking centre. Um, so I didn't go in before school, um, but after school, I'd literally run home, jump on my bike, put on my wellies and, and go, go back to the horses. And every weekend, every holiday, I was working with the, the horses. So mm. I, at that point sort of thought and my mum I think you know I told her that I wanted to work with horses when I left school so she kind of was thinking well there's nothing that you're learning at school that's probably going to going to help you the kind of your, your real learning you're doing yourself with the horses you know out of out of school but then it wasn't until I kind of got to about 16 and I sort of thought actually as a career I realized that um not that it wasn't about you know about earning money but you know it's, it's very difficult to earn a living mm. you know if you don't if you don't have money um around horses it's very difficult to actually kind of make a living at it and um, so people do it you know as a as a passion mm. but sort of I think by that age 15 16 I was sort of starting kind of, sort of thinking of sort of a bit bigger and wider and sort of what what kind of life I'd like to lead as an adult and I really sort of loved the idea of you know, of traveling and going to new places and exploring and having adventures because that's what I'd been doing, you know, all my life as a, you know, this young kid and then a sort of, you know, young teenager in just being outside, exploring the hills and the mountains and the, you know, the, the, the shoreline around, mm. around all, that's what I did. And that's what I, you know, thrived on. I just loved being out in kind of wild places. Um, and I remember I watched, I was watching a, a documentary, and I think it was about um, flying vets in East Africa somewhere. And I remember watching this program and just sort of seeing all that wildlife that you have in, in East Africa and thinking that I would love to go somewhere like that and work with those animals. So I was thinking maybe like as a as a ranger or sort of, you know, as a pilot flying these little bush bush planes. Um so I'm going to start thinking along those lines and it was quite solidified in my mind. It was sort of, I'm not going to, you know, most kids that didn't have a, you know, solid academic foundation, they'd leave school and work on the fishing boats or the fish farm. There's forestry, a little bit of farming on, on Mull. Um, but yeah, there was a sort of fairly direct path into a limited number of, of jobs for, for, for young men or uh, boys on on Mull and none of those, none of those jobs are really, are really fancied. I sort of thought, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of stay on Mull for the rest of my life. I want to, 
you know, get out into the into the world uh, and carry on exploring in the way that I had had done, but just sort of going further further field. And as far as you know, being a becoming a wildlife cameraman, it was just a sheer coincidence that I was working when I was about 15, 16, I was working, started working in a restaurant to get a bit of money because the horses weren't, that wasn't paying. <laughs> so I thought I'll get a, a job and I was working in the kitchen of a little restaurant on the main street in Tobermory. And Anne, Anne Gordon, who owned the restaurant, her husband was a wildlife filmmaker and he was traveling all over the world. And that was really kind of just sparked um, something in me. I thought I'd, that's the job that I mm. To, to do it just ticked all of the all of the boxes just being able to sort of explore work with animals get close to to nature be in wild places all around the world and it was sort of sounded exotic and exciting for you know a 16 year old yeah um and yeah kind of led from from there i chatted him up and sort of helped him out at home with a few things and then by the time i was 17 he got a big sort of year and a half long contract in, in Sierra Leone and he needed an assistant sort of dog's body type person. And kind of out of the blue, he obviously knew that I was interested in what he did, but never did I imagine that he would offer me a job. But yeah, when I was 17, he sort of just said one day, would you be interested in being my assistant for this project in Sierra Leone? Uh, and I was like, definitely. Yeah. Well, you'll have to leave, you'll have to leave school he said you have to get a driving license and leave school and I was like well I'm just kind of wasting my time there (laughs) and yeah so as soon as I knew it was all happening uh and it was definitely going ahead I just went into the headmaster's office one day and said that's I'm I'm leaving he said what are you doing I'm going to uh, I'm going to West Africa in a couple of months and that was yeah that's how, how it started but, but obviously that's that was fascinating to hear about how that all came about because it's one of the things I suppose a lot of people wonder like how do you get into that line of work and obviously you're going on tour in in February uh, of 2022 to talk about your career and some of the amazing things you've done which of which there are many um what tell us a bit more about the tour like what are you going to be exactly doing is it sort of going to be a sort of overview of your whole career or are you going to pick out some of the best bits and talk about what it was really like to be there at that moment or um, well, over lockdown, when I was sort of spending all of this time at, at home and not sort of being distracted by constantly traveling, um, I was sort of kind of, I realized that I, you know, I was coming up to my 30th year mm. making wildlife documentaries and working in this, in this industry. Um, and I suppose I had that time to look back across, you know, three decades, um, you know, going from being a 17 year old, you know, on the Isle of Mull, not knowing anything to sort of, you know, really exploring the, the world in a really kind of full way and sort of, you know, traveling to every continent but Antarctica and having all of these extraordinary experiences. And, and it, funnily enough, I don't see them as being extraordinary because I've been doing them, you know, mm-hmm. this life for, for 30 years. It's not until you kind of, you know, start talking about some of the experiences that I've had that it is out of the out of the ordinary and people are really interested and engaged. Mm. You know, you know, the most common question I get asked is how did how did I get started? So with the, the tour, it's really sort of talking about, you know, how it all started from for me. And sort of, I suppose that kind of progression from you know being a 17-year-old boy to being a sort of well now sort of 49-year-old man. Um uh 
you know, traveling the world and sort of being, you know, getting to witness some of the most extraordinary wildlife spectacles, you know, going to places that people can only dream of, of traveling to. Uh, and yeah, so it's, a, it's sort of, I suppose it's like at the end of uh, Big Brother and you said the best bits, that's sort of what the tour is going to be. <laughs> of, you know, the things that I've sort of seen and, and learned, the changes that I've seen, you know, around the, the world, my hopes for the, for the future, um, you know, how sort of stimulating and nourishing your know, wildlife can can be and nature can can be in in people's in people's lives and very and uplifting and uncomplicated that's what i love about about nature it's a it's you know for a, for a kid that was always distracted uh it's you know i find the biggest distraction the most welcome distraction uh for me is is nature and mm. you find it out in a wild place and you switch off from everything else and you're just very much, you know, um, living in the, living in the moment. Been a lot more sort of in chat of sort of mindfulness, uh, and the health benefits and mental health benefits of, of nature, certainly over the last, the last year. Mm. And I realized actually I've been living that, that life for, for 30 years and getting, you know, a huge amount of fulfillment, uh, not from my, career as such but just from the, the opportunities that mm. my career has, has given me um but yeah i'm really of it's one great thing about doing the tour and it's sort of countrywide so pretty much i think starts at the end of january um 2022 and then right up into the end of february so it's traveling around the uk uh going to lots of different sort of towns and theaters um in sort of big cities sort of big towns uh but sort of meeting meeting people and actually finding out from them what, you know, what they're interested to, to hear. So there'll be a big section on, um, you know, questions sort of Q and A sort of, you know, what, you know, what do the, those people that actually sit, sit at home and watch these programs, what, what are they really interested in? Cause when you make a program, it's very one way, you know, sort of you make it all and that's what the audience gets. Whereas the great thing with the tour is that it's actually, you know, it's more of, it's more of a conversation. It's sort of, it'll be an informal. So there'll be, you know, it'll give people an opportunity to sort of, you know, take me by surprise and ask me anything. <laughs> no, it sounds great. And, and I mean, as you mentioned, you're going to a lot of places. I mean, you're going to from uh, uh, Loughborough, Cardiff, Exeter, Bristol, Coventry, uh, Basingstoke, all over, like you say, and, and uh, we've got Dundee. Aberdeen, Edinburgh. So yeah, loads of opportunities for people to come along. I presume you, you probably get asked this one a lot, but it is an amazing piece of television. Is the one where you're in the sort of, anyone who's not seen this, you should go on YouTube and type in, you can literally type in polar bear Gordon and that's what it will, and it'll, it'll find this clip of you in this kind of, um, what is it, like a metal sort of cage with presumably like the most reinforced glass in the world. You're out in, in, in the Arctic and there's a polar bear and it comes along and it, it really tries to get inside, doesn't it? It wants to open up this kinder egg of, of this thing that's appeared and get inside you. And you, you're pretty calm through that. But I mean, that must have been one of the most unbelievably terrifying moments of your life or indeed anyone's life, I, can, I think. I don't remember that occasion. Oh no, it's coming back to me. Uh, no, it was obviously a very memorable um, yeah. fifty minutes. Um, but we we had built. I'd actually just been filming the year before. Had been filming black bears uh, in Minnesota, and with black bears or those black bears, you could get really close to them. Um, you sit sit right beside them. Um, and we the next project with polar bears, we obviously realised that you 
can't sit right next to a polar mm. bear and sort of walk walk away at the end of it. <laughs> we wanted a way of of being with polar bears and sort of being safe, um, but having that sort of proximity. So we designed and built this polar bear proof filming hide. Um, and we'd used it initially, we were supposed to, we were going to use it at the at the den. Um, we wanted to film polar bears leaving the den with their mother and sort of um for the first time. Uh, and we thought, well, that's one way we can sit. I can be inside this. And if any polar bear comes close, we won't have to run away, which is sort of, you know, generally with polar bears, if you get in 20 meters, you have to jump on your skidoo or back in the boat and, and back off. Um, so we thought, well, if I'm in something that a polar bear can't get into, I'll be fine. And, um, every other polar bear that walked past it when I was in it completely ignored it um, didn't pay any attention, but it was just this one location where there was lots of polar bears around. Uh, and there was this big, huge sort of female that was walking past. She was sort of about to start hunting seals. So I was trying to film this, this area on the ice where the, most of the seals were. And this female walked past and she just sort of, instead of like carrying on looking mm. for seals, walked right up to this hopefully polar bear proof hide yeah. uh, and then sort of realized there was something inside that she might quite like to to snack on and yeah. she spent a good 40 minutes trying to figure out a way of getting to its nice crunchy chewy yeah. scent. Well, and this is it and you can't you built this polar bear proof thing but you, how can you you can't test it can you you couldn't have tested it no well we've put a polar bear with it and it's tested it and said yeah i can't break into that you know you were you were finding out in the moment if it was as strong as it needed to be which oh it's just something else it made me think as well like people die with sharks don't they? they get in shark cages and the sharks sometimes come along and sort of bounce into them and that's that's must be a bit of a moment but they don't spend 40 minutes as you say with quite dexterous paws trying to actually check how strong it is i mean it's it's another level of close encounter with a with a very with a you know an apex predator isn't it yeah, and the one thing that with shark cages, they are um, they're tried and tested. That mm. sort of that was something you know, shark caging, shark diving with sharks um, in cages has been sort of around for quite a long time. Whereas with our polar bear, bear proof hide, we assembled it out on the ice when we arrived in Svalbard, and then smacked it like smacked it with a couple of big ma- heavy mallets. A couple of times and thought, oh, that should that should do. <laughs> um, but in when you know during that sort of you know those lot very long sort of 40, 50 minutes, um, you know, I thought people have said, oh, you you appeared very calm, and I wasn't. But I sort of thought, well, here's an opportunity to talk about this apex predator sort of up close. So it kind of you know gifted me this opportunity to really you know see polar bears up close and you know get across the point that you know not that I want to sort of don't want to demonize any any animal but you know there's of there was no yeah no mistaking the fact that this polar bear would have you know would have attacked me or eaten me or sort of you know snacked on me and had the, had the had the chance so i just made the yeah made the most of that situation and sort of tried to be tried to be professional i remember thinking at the time i was like what would david attenborough do if he was sort of in a situation like this he would probably be very calm and just try and deliver as much sort of information as uh as, as he could 
That's great. I love the fact that even like someone like you, you know, the, the top of your game and you, all your own shows, there's still like this, what would Attenborough do? Like he's still just the, the, the daddy, you know, just think think of him. And okay, final, final question on that then. If you had to be put back in a situation of back in that polar bear cage with the polar bear trying to break in or back in school doing a times table test, which would be the least scary? Uh, polar bear. I would no. I would, I would do the polar bears. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to do that again. But if it was a choice of two, if it was if it was me being a yeah, um, a ten year old trying to do my times table or in a little cage with a polar bear trying to eat me, I would go with the polar bear <laughs> every time. It's not that was an easy. That was an easy question. To oh, well, there you go. Yeah, excellent. Well, that's, that seems like a great place to, to wrap up, I think, in, in many ways. Um, so, yeah, the tour's taking place next year, um, so across, across the UK. Sounds like there's some amazing stories. I'm sure you'll get some great questions from the audience, and, and hopefully people listening to this will, will be some of those to come along and, and listen and ask the questions. But thank you so much for talking to us. Wonderful memories, both of, of school and, and your, your work as well. So, yeah, great stuff. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure.